And Dr. Philip Pearl was born in Baltimore, grew up in Baltimore, and he initially studied uh, music by being a percussionist. He went to um, Johns Hopkins and was in the first class of students that was allowed to go to Johns Hopkins and the Peabody Conservatory of Music at the same time. So he majored in natural sciences at Hopkins and he majored in percussion at the Peabody. Um, after graduating from Johns Hopkins, he then went to University of Maryland Medical School. And after that, he did a residency in pediatrics and a residency in neurology at Baylor School of Medicine in Houston. After that, he then did an epilepsy fellowship in Boston at Harvard. And then he went to the DC area and um, he was affiliated with um, George Washington University and the NIH. And at George Washington University, he actually held professorships in uh, pediatrics, neurology, and music. So it's very unusual for someone to be a professor of music at the same time that they're a professor of neurology. A couple of years ago, he was recruited to become the director of epilepsy at the Children's Hospital in Boston, so also a um, Harvard-associated um, affiliate. So he's now appointed at Harvard. Harvard was unwilling to give him a professorship of music, but he's still a very active musician. And um, I'm really delighted to um, present him here to the Trinity community tonight. I apologize if I forgot any of the details, but I tried to remember that string of um, events in his biography. And um, so please help me welcome Dr. Philip Pearl. That's nice. Thank you, Susan. Yeah, you tell, you tell a great story. Yeah, I, I don't know, I, I shouldn't maybe say Harvard was unwilling, but the recruitment there was very independent of the music department, yeah. We did, I did ask about it, it just wasn't part of the deal. So I wasn't gonna push that, but uh, thank you for this warm welcome. I'm learning so much about this place. It has this wonderful collegiate atmosphere with an emphasis, emphasis in neuroscience, amazing. Is any, anyone here a music major by any chance? No, okay, interesting. So, <laughs> because I, I was also in the music department at GW and I've given the talk to music audiences, science audiences, medical audiences, and I kind of adjust the talk to the audience. So we'll see how this goes. Um, it's become sort of a, a avocation or a quasi hobby to put together, actually this is a whole philosophy I have. I have this philosophy, this is great for the students I think, that if you combine things, you can really do something creative and innovative. See, there aren't really that many original thoughts. I mean, my opinion of research is we just re repeatedly search stuff over and over again. We don't really have that many original thoughts. So what I have found helpful is to combine areas, and that means studying different er areas. So studying medicine and neurology and music has been wonderful because I've been able to combine them. I've done the same thing in my career. I was always interested in biochemistry, and then I became a neurologist and an epileptologist, and I ended up specializing and now doing quite a bit of research in metabolic epilepsies where I combine biochemistry and epilepsy. Or just as an example, when I was a little kid, I always wanted to be a pediatrician, but then I fell in love with neuroscience as a college student, so I became a child neurologist, makes sense. So, This talk is about combining a passion for neurology or medicine and music. Now, the, the goal here is me to cover some bios, because I think studying biographies of great people is a great way to learn about history and the history of their field, in this case music, and the history of medicine, because the emphasis is on medicine. 
So I have hours and hours of this stuff, and I may not get through with the people on this slide, and I could show you a whole slide of more people. But if, you're, if you don't already know who each of these people are, don't worry, because you will feel almost intimately familiar with them by the end of the hour. So this is just kind of a preview as a quiz. If you already know who these folks are, that, I'd be really impressed. Maybe you know some of them. But let's just get started with the first one. So I'm going to go in chronological order. Now, if I, if I gave a lecture on the history of music, I'd have to start, of course, with, <coughs> excuse me, talking about like the Western music, like music of the church and the Baroque. And of course, the master of the Baroque was Bach. And then the, the, um, the classical period. So we're going we're gonna to start with the classical period. Uh, the darling child of the classical period is really Mozart um, and Haydn. But the guy who changed all the rules and who's still my favorite composer is Beethoven. Yet, even when I was a 10-year-old kid, I was so fascinated by the fact that the greatest composer maybe of all time went deaf. Isn't it, didn't that always blow you away? And he composed some of his greatest symphonies. I mean, of the nine symphonies, he composed the ninth one when he was stone-cold deaf. And even seven and eight, he was going very deaf. How did he do it? So I've always been fascinated by it. So does anybody here have a theory what caused Beethoven's deafness? Most people have theories. It's not known. Most people throw out stuff like lead poisoning and neurosyphilis, but okay, we'll get into it. So Beethoven's born in Bonn, and he is the crucial transitional figure from the classical period of music, the Mozart, Haydn period, to the Romance period of music, like Schumann, who we'll get into, who's another character. Now, Beethoven, like a lot of, a lot of these people, is a very interesting generational skipping thing where the grandfather was the great Kapellmeister of Bonn. He was the leader of the orchestra. He was a great musician. Whereas his father was a real mediocre musician, became a chronic alcoholic. Beethoven had to support him completely yet toward the end of his life. His father was abusive toward his mother. So it's a real grandfather-grandchild kind of connection. The father was almost like could be discarded. Now, Beethoven himself tried to say he was a Vaughn, not a Van. See, the Vons in, in Germany then were the aristocrats, but he was just a commoner, and he fought this until he ended up in court over a big court battle about custody of his nephew after his brother died, the father of his nephew, and he fought the sister-in-law. And that's when it came out that Beethoven was nothing more than a commoner. But wow, was he talented for a commoner. So you know, I could talk about the biography of Beethoven forever, but we're going to get into his um, medical story. So Beethoven wrote, of course, the famous nine symphonies, many piano concertos, sonatas, string quartets, choral works. Now take a look at him. And by the way, this becomes medically important. Is this pointer or point? Does he see him? Take a look at him. He was a cute little cherubic kind of kid, you know, but as an adult, he wasn't very handsome. And he, he was quite short. In fact, women were revulsed by him. He had a lot of bad habits. He made a lot of GI sounds. No one went to dinner with him because of all the belching and flatus and things like that. All these great stories about him being difficult. So let's talk about his deafness, because that's my focus in this talk. <coughs> it turns out Ludwig van Beethoven started becoming deaf in his mid-20s. You know, not a whole lot older than most of the students, you know, at, the, at school like this. And he described the beginning of his deafness, the onset, as, quote, difficulty with conversation and a sound of humming in my ears, which continues day and night without ceasing. By the time he's 32, he acknowledged that my hearing was, quote, a sense formerly I possessed in the highest perfection, a perfection such as few in my profession enjoy or have ever enjoyed. Now, Beethoven clearly had absolute pitch, what some people call perfect pitch. Everyone I'm presenting today, by the way, had absolute pitch. 
many great musicians do, but you don't have to have absolute pitch to be a great musician. You can, you can acquire good relative pitch, but he had perfect pitch. Yet he realized in his, around the time he was 30 years old that he presented with high-frequency hearing loss. That's a big clue to physicians in the audience. Dr. Brunkell is here. Where's Dr. Brunkell? Yeah, back there. It's nice to have another child neurologist here. So anyway, he realized he couldn't hear the high registers of the instruments and the voices in the orchestra. And he also experienced recruitment. In other words, as he said, often I can scarcely hear anyone speaking to me. The tones, yes, but not the actual words. Yet as soon as anyone shouts, it is unbearable. So as people become deaf, sometimes they experience recruitment where your nerves are trying to do a better job and they overcompensate and you become hypersensitive to sound as you're losing your hearing. By the time he's 37, he's using little trumpets to help his hearing. Now there he is as a young man in his 20s. Now look at him here as he's getting older. As he got older, he had lots of GI symptoms. I mentioned that, gastrointestinal symptoms like colic or belly pain and diarrhea. He also had lots of headaches. And his last appearance as a concert pianist is at age 44. Notice I have the years of his life there. So he dies in his early 50s. But okay, he stops playing at 44. And this is a description of his last concert. Seated before the piano, his head all but inside the wood shell, one of the ear trumpets held in place, he would pound upon the keys until the strings jangled discordantly. Now, I don't know about you, but you may have grown up with the stories I grew up with where Beethoven destroyed piano after piano. He'd stick his head in the piano and he'd bang and bang. He destroyed the things. People like knew if they, had a, if, if they were having him over for a party, their piano may not exist by the next day. But it turns out he was very frustrated about his hearing loss. He wrote many letters about this and he has this whole book of letters he wrote, not really to love interests. He never had any successful love interests. He never married. His problem with marriage is he was always infatuated with women who were either married to someone else or betrothed to someone else. And as I said, his appearance became kind of worse as he got older. Now, at age 48, he writes the famous Fifth Symphony. I'll play an excerpt here today. But by 49, he's stone deaf. Now, at 51, he does develop jaundice. In other words, he starts drinking. He gets depressed about his hearing loss and about his unsuccessful love relationships. He starts drinking, becomes an alcoholic, just like his father, and he develops jaundice because he developed alcoholic hepatitis. But by the time he's 52, and there's a picture of him conducting wildly in one of his last concerts, he gave up conducting. There was complete pandemonium with the final performance of his own Fidelio. And this was the description of Beethoven at the podium. With a bewildered face, waving his baton with violent motions, the master did not hear a note. The deaf master ran from the podium upset the fatal day of November. Now, Beethoven dies at 57 years of age, and the official cause of death was liver failure. Well, he was a chronic alcoholic, what do you expect? And his final illness was characterized as ascites, which means fluid in the belly from liver failure. Bleeding diathesis, well, when your liver fails, you can't clot, you bleed out. Jaundice, well, that's from the bilirubin accumulating from liver failure. I realize I'm talking mainly to pre-meds, so I'm trying to explain the medical part. That's obvious to those of us who are physicians, but may not be obvious to non-physicians. Inanition meaning, you know, loss of energy. And, but his mentation remained clear. Beethoven was sharp till the end. In fact, on his deathbed, he composed for his doctors the canon, close the door against death I plead, notes will help in need. So he had a sense of humor. <coughs> you know, he had this reputation as a, a misanthrope and a misogynist, but when you read his stuff, he really was not that vicious in his heart. He was depressed about being deaf. <coughs> his final words following the paracentesis, which means the physicians put a needle in his abdomen to drain the fluid out, 
were, Professor, you remind me of Moses striking the rock with his staff, as the guy's putting the needle in his belly. And upon signing his will, March 24, 1827, he says in Latin the equivalent of, applaud friends, the comedy is finished. He dies March 26, 1827. Now, Beethoven's physical appearance becomes important in the differential diagnosis of his deafness. In other words, the different things that the diagnosis could be to explain his hearing loss. One, he had short stature. Two, he had a very unusual physiognomy. He was said to have a Leonine appearance, like a leopard. His face looked like a leopard uh, and ugly. It was said that he possessed the terrified countenance of a leopard, like someone with leprosy. And it was said he had a simian ugliness, like a monkey. And he was described as a fantastic gargoyle, like an ugly statue on a church, something like that. <coughs> he was described as a gorgon-headed totem, the original caveman. But he was a pretty good-looking kid. Now, the original autopsy report was lost. This is 1827. His body was exhumed two times later, but they were 36 and 61 years after his death. What was noted about his autopsy were the following features. His ears were very large, which is kind of interesting. They were also irregularly formed. I'm not sure what to make of that. The concha, the spaces in his ears were very large, but, and the eustachian tubes in the middle ear were very thick. The facial nerves, the nerves that give rise to facial movement that are, say, impaired when you have Bell's palsy, they were also very thick. And the auditory nerves of all things, cranial nerve 8, for those of you who know the 12 cranial nerves, were shriveled. And that goes along with the deafness. Who would think the greatest composer of all time had shriveled auditory nerves? It's incredible. And they were said to be destitute of neurona, the little nerves, and the arteries of the nerves were dilated. His brain turned out to have deep convolutions that were wide and numerous. So he had some atrophy of his brain, even though his mentation was clear, maybe from all the alcohol, that can give you brain atrophy. But here's the key. His calvarium, the bone, was thick, dense, a half an inch of thickness to his bone. His liver was shrunken, no surprise, from the alcoholic cirrhosis. His spleen was enlarged, dark and firm, no surprise with alcoholism. His pancreas the same way, no surprise to have pancreatitis from alcoholism. So, oh, I'll let that go. Many diagnoses have been entertained, some of them very esoteric to explain his deafness. Something called psychobiological destruction of the auditory nerves, it doesn't make sense, autointoxication. He himself thought he probably had typhoid fever. Typhoid fever is an infection um, and, uh, from, from a bacteria, and, uh, but yet it can cause liver problems. But his liver was not the liver, the inflamed hepatitis of, of typhoid fever. His liver was more of an alcoholic liver. And if you do get hearing loss from typhoid fever, you get this, this, this scarring of your ear bones called otosclerosis. He didn't have that. Now, typhus is another infection, and that was actually endemic then in Vienna, where he spent his life, even though he was born in Bonn, he spent his adult life in Vienna. And he did have headaches and gastrointestinal symptoms you can get in typhus, but any deafness you get from that infection is a transient, temporary deafness, not a long-term deafness. Some people said maybe he had chronic otitis, in other words, ear infection, but he never had a history of drainage coming out of his ears or otalgia, pain in the ears. He didn't have otosclerosis because the ossicles looked okay on the autopsy. People said he may have had lupus. I don't know if you're familiar with lupus, a vasculitic disease, but people with lupus, that give, it gives you deafness. It's also going to give you some mental problems because you get an encephalitic component. And then a lot of people have said maybe he had syphilis, that he used prostitutes because he never successfully married. One, there's really no evidence that Beethoven used prostitutes. And two, 
he didn't have the kind of definite. You can get two kinds of de you can get two kinds of syphilis: congenital, you're born with it because if your mom had it, or acquired syphilis from as a venereal disease. We don't see it anymore too much because of penicillin, but this is pre-penicillin, right? So he didn't have like he had late slow deafness. That's not what you get in congenital syphilis, and he didn't have the liver problems or the cerebral brain deficits you see in acquired syphilis. So. A lot of us think that Beethoven's deafness was due to Paget's disease. Now, Paget, James Paget described his disease in 1877, 50 years after Beethoven died. But this is a disease that in your 20s, you start to get gradual progressive deafness, initially of the high tones. You, get, you start with high frequency hearing loss, headaches, and it's a bone disease, so your head gets large and your face gets kind of ugly. In fact, the facies and Paget's disease is described as leontiasis ossea, like a leper or a leopard, and that's exactly how Beethoven was described. And it's a progressive disease where you could go from a good-looking guy to a short stature with thick bones and ugly. And Beethoven's autopsy showed, A, a thickened skull and thickened meninges, which you see in Paget's disease, and atrophy of the eighth cranial nerves, the auditory nerves, and dilated auditory nerve arteries. So he had the pathological features. We don't have genetic proof. Someone has recently said they examined the bone in Beethoven's brain and it didn't have the histologic findings on the microscopy of Paget's disease, but it's not clear they had the right guy's bone. So we still don't know. But most of us in academic neurology think Beethoven's deafness was from Paget's disease, a disease that wasn't even described at the time of his life. <clears throat> now, by the time he writes the Ninth Symphony, which was his sort of call to world peace, and I'm gonna play an excerpt from it. When you listen to it, you'll see, yeah, this is like, the answer to world peace. Unfortunately, the world didn't catch on, did it? It's called the Ode to Joy. He's totally deaf in 1819. Now, he wrote it over a long period of time, over six years or so, 1817, 1823. But here's the quote of the, of the uh, debut of the Ode to Joy. May 7, 1824 in Vienna, the master, though placed in the midst of the confluence of music, heard nothing of it all and was not even sensible of the applause. His turning around acted like an electric shock on all present and a volcanic explosion of sympathy and admiration followed, which was repeated again and again and again as, seemed, as if it seemed it would never end. Beethoven was appreciated by the public. When he died, there was a huge funeral in, in uh, Vienna. And so what I thought I'd do was play a little bit of the famous Fifth Symphony, the first movement, and a little bit of the chorale part of the Ode to Joy. I want to show you this picture because... Soon after I got to Boston, I was recruited into a really cool physician's orchestra called the Longwood Symphony Orchestra. And we played a concert at uh, Jordan Hall, which is at the uh, New England Conservatory of Music. And, as, and I'm all dressed up because I was in the uh, orchestra. And uh, as I walked out, there was a statue of Beethoven. So there's, uh, I had to have a picture of me standing at the statue of Beethoven for the talk. So a little bit of the fifth, uh, just to get Beethoven in our ears, and a little bit of the ninth. And then I'll move up chronologically. And before I play, I just remembered I want to say something about the music because a lot of this talk's very medical. Maybe it's a little too medical for this crowd. No? Okay, good. Um, you know what Beethoven was incredible at? He, he changed a lot of the rules with music. He, he didn't use the standard kind of format to write the various four movements of a symphony. Sometimes he'd use five movements. He'd do things that were shocking. But the, the essence of Beethoven is he could take the simplest little theme, like in the case of the fifth, if you think about it, major third, minor third. The whole thing is based, at least the first movement, is based on the major third, minor third. I once went to a talk where somebody pointed out that Beethoven used that sequence 750-some times in the Fifth Symphony. So the whole thing's based on that. So you'll hear as I play it, 
that over and over again. And he gets into a development part, and some of the chords become minor and diminished. And you'll, you'll hear that right away, and, and some dominant seven chords. But then he goes right back into the major third, minor third. So a little bit of the first movement of Beethoven's fifth. So now, we talked about Beethoven's deafness, probably due to a disease that he, no one ever even heard of when he died, to Schumann. So Schumann was the darling of the romance period. And we talk about romantic music. We're not talking about romantic love, like between a man and a woman. We're talking about expressing oneself musically, expressing oneself musically, talking about nature and one's own music and about self, kind of a little bit self-absorbed. So Schumann was born in Zwickau, in Saxony, Germany. And like everyone I'm presenting here, he was a child prodigy. By the time he's 14, he wrote an essay on the aesthetics of music. He contributed to a volume that his father edited. So his father was a bookseller and uh, was infatuated with books. Uh, but his father died when Robert was 16 years of age. And what did Robert do? He was sent to Leipzig to study law, which um, was the thing to do, and that's what his father wanted for him and his mother very much wanted. The thing about going to Leipzig was there were a lot of Bohemians there, and then if you were an artist or a musician, it was perfect. So law school didn't last long. In fact, there are stories that Robert wrote letters to his mother saying how much he enjoyed law school, and then his roommate wrote a letter to Robert's mother saying he never attended a day of class. 
<laughs> he was not a great student. And in fact, he ended up studying piano with a teacher named Friedrich Wieck. Now, Wieck was a, uh, mm, mm, a sadistic teacher. He made Robert, pra you ever, anybody had a piano teacher that made you practice so much you couldn't take it anymore? No. <coughs> well, that's how Wieck was. We're going to get back to Wieck. You'll see why. Robert had a dream to become a concert pianist, but Wieck made him practice so hard, he, he had this problem with his right finger where he couldn't move it as he played, musician's dystonia. So Robert Schumann is the first example we have, at least in the literature, of musician's dystonia, which has really created the entire field of professional arts medicine, where physicians just specialize in the problems of musicians. Because, you know, we ask musicians to do incredibly complex fine motor things, piano, strings, horn with embouchure. Uh, horn players get facial dystonia, where they can't even move their lips anymore. This is what destroyed Robert Schumann's career as a concert pianist. There's some debate whether it was his fourth finger or his middle finger or his fifth finger because it's not so clear. This is back in, you know, early 1800s. Uh, it was attributed to mercury treatment he received for syphilis, but the truth is that diagnosis came a little later and doesn't really make sense. The feeling is it was overused dystonia from too much practicing, and I mean relentless hours and hours of difficult drills. And he actually treated himself with some kind of crazy finger device, and he bathed bathed his hand in the abdominal cavity of freshly slaughtered animals, things that were used in those days. Um, <clears throat> but what, what did he become? Well, he couldn't really play piano anymore. So he became an editor. Sort of like we say sometimes physicians can't practice anymore, so what do they do? They maybe become editors of journals. He, just, he sort of founded his own journal called Neue Zeitschrift für Musik, like new works for music, and he wrote the editorials. But yet he would write the editorials with two personalities. He signed some as Floristan, a name he created for himself. And when he wrote an extroverted editorial, he signed the Floristan. And then when he wrote a more introverted editorial, he called himself Eusebius. And in his editorials, he created an entire organization, frankly, in his imagination, called the Davidsbund to counter the Philistines in music. This is equivalent to like uh, the, an adolescent uh, you know, intergenerational gap in music where like my, my kids might play rap, and I can't stand it. It was like that. Like he was uh, an adolescent protesting the music of his elders or something like that. This Davidsbund, by the way, appeared to have a membership of one. That was Robert. So he had all kinds of stuff going on in his head. Now, he wrote his famous uh, first great, um, si uh, I guess, symphony. It's called the Carnival, or translated as Mardi Gras or Carnival, in 1834. So he's, what, 20, he's 23, 24 when he writes it. And yet all 21 sections of this piece emphasize musical notes corresponding to the German city of Asch. Why Asch? Because Asch was the home of Miss Fraulein Ernestine von Flicken, who was his early paramour. In other words, he had quite an affair with this Ernestine von Flicken. There are many things written about the intensity of sort of like an affair in high school or college. He was completely infatuated with this woman. And there are all sorts of statements about her that I cannot repeat in public company. But leave it to this, that he actually took the name of Ash and wrote an entire piece on it. So Ash A is, um, <coughs> well, A is A, of course, but S in German is the equivalent of C flat. I mean, E flat. And C is C, and H in German is our B. And yet, he ordered the pitches, so it was in the order of his name, S-C-H-A, which would be E flat, C, B, A. 
And if you listen to the carnival, I, ur I urge you to get a CD of the carnival. You will hear this over and over again. And it's almost like he's talking about himself the whole time. It's like the thing goes, shoo-munch, 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 shoo-munch. Shoo and that's ex <laughs> and it's, it's a fascinating piece. So he really represents the truism of what we mean by the romantic period in music, the emergence of your true self. Makes sense. Now, who was Schumann's, Robert's greatest love affair with? You've heard of Clara Schumann, but she was Clara Wieck. So she's the daughter of the piano teacher that destroyed his career. And when he was 16 and started studying with V, Clara was nine, seven years difference. And their love affair began seven years later when she was something like 16 and he was 23. And he had a prolonged legal battle with his future father-in-law. And to spite him, the two married each other one day before her 21st birthday when they could have legally married. So this is a whole big chapter in the life and the love affair, which was an incredible love affair of Robert and Clara Schumann. It turns out they had lots of kids and they made up with Wieck later. But uh, it's an interesting chapter in Schumann's life. Clara herself was a fabulous pianist and composer. But Schumann's medical history is our focus today. So when he was 15, his older sister Emily committed suicide. That's interesting. And then when he's 17, he started writing that he was losing his mind. Now, of course, he had been in uh, Leipzig for a year. He's getting ready to be an editor of his own journal. By the time he's 20, he starts drinking alcohol and binges and starts having these auditory symptoms. You all heard about this, where Robert Schumann heard the sound A in his ear over and over again. It drove him crazy. And you know, A has a very bright sound. You know, doesn't it sound bright? If some of you use uh, synesthesia, where you combine sensory stimuli, so for example, you hear something and you see a color, you can be born with it or you can work at it and develop it. I have had to work at it, but piano players are able to do it with the white notes better than the black notes. But for example, when I hear C, I kind of, I don't know about you, I see brown. Everyone has different colors, but you have to work at it if you're not born with it. But anybody here have synesthesia? So for me, that's brown. D is, for me, is green. E is orange. That's purple. G is blue. Yellow. And B, red. Doesn't that sound red? My little, my little girls, I say, what note is it? They say, red, B. So he had that yellow at the higher, he had it one octave up above middle C in his ear, driving him crazy. Uh, he actually wrote about throwing himself into the Rhine River. We're going to come back to that. Then he develops euphoria, high mood. He goes from depressed to manic. That tells you what's he dealing with. Sounds like he's dealing with bipolar affective disorder, manic depressive. Okay, he's, he contemplates writing a grand opera after Shakespeare's Hamlet at a stage of his musical life where he wasn't quite at that level. A year later, he starts writing about his sexual relationships, uh, uh, frankly, with Miss Von Fricken. He develops a penile sore. He, gets, he develops syphilis days before penicillin. Then in 1833, so now he's uh, 23 years old, he loses a brother to tuberculosis, his sister-in-law to malaria. He becomes very anxious. He writes he has tortures of the most terrible melancholy. But then he has Clara, and they have happy years. He has bursts of productivity, and he starts composing stuff that 100 people, composers couldn't compose in their lifetimes combined. He does this in a matter of years. But in the mid-1840s, he's 33 years of age. He starts getting very nervous. He gets fits of shivering, starts to fear death, starts treating himself with crazy alternative stuff. And then he leaves for Dresden. So he takes, he feels like he has to get out of Leipzig because he's suffering. Goes to Dresden. It doesn't go well. It's not a very good musical town like Leipzig. Then he moves to Dusseldorf to become the, the music director. 
Well, if you become the music director, you've got to be a conductor, at least in that era. And Robert Schumann could express himself beautifully in writing, whether it was in German or music, but he didn't speak well, and he had very poor fine motor coordination. By the way, everyone I'm telling you about today, they weren't really the athletic type. This was not the jock crowd. This is a different crowd. And this was the same back then. He was so incoordinated that he dropped the baton. He had crazy movements. He, he wasn't smooth in his movements. The orchestra laughed at him, would walk off the stage repeatedly. It was a total disaster. By the time he's 42, he has a nervous breakdown. He gets treated with cold baths and leeches to suck the blood off of him, which is what people did back then. But then a year later, he has a period of elation. He buys a piano for Clara that they could ill afford. And then this fateful time, February 27, 1854, guess what he does? He walks to the nearby Rhine River in his nightgown and slippers. As a form of payment, he hands some guard a silk handkerchief and throws himself into the water, something he kind of fantasized about 20 years earlier. <coughs> well, it turns out he was rescued by fishermen, but he was admitted to an insane asylum near Bonn until his death over two years later. And the, one of the saddest things is they wouldn't let Clara visit him until just weeks or maybe a couple months before his death. Clara herself lived a long life. She was a fantastic pianist and composer. She was heartbroken after Robert's death. She herself had severe rheumatism, joint pain, and neuralgia, <coughs> like peripheral neuropathy type pain in one arm. <coughs> so she's widowed at 37. Now, it turns out she had an intense but we think platonic relationship with Robert's best friend, Johannes Brahms. You've heard of Beethoven, Bach, and Brahms. Well, Brahms and Robert were very close. He actually moved into the Schumann home. He took care of her finances. He kept her going. But the evidence suggests they slept in separate rooms. Forty years after she's widowed, she dies at 77 after a couple strokes. Now, take a look at this. Of eight children she had with Robert, one son became mentally ill at 20, which is about when Robert became mentally ill. And he died in a mental hospital 31 years later. Another became addicted to morphine and died at 41, so a lot of psychopathology. So the feeling about Robert Schumann, and here's a picture of the tombstone, they are buried together, Robert and Clara, is he probably lived with manic depressive illness, but he died of what? You don't really die of manic depressive illness. He must have died of neurosyphilis. Why do I say that? Because you develop syphilis from venereal disease with, a, say, a penile sore like he had, in his case, in, the tw in his 20s, but 10, 20 years later, you get the neurologic form of it, we call it tertiary, instead of primary, we call it tertiary syphilis, and you become insane, you have all sorts of anxiety, your pupils become unequal, and there are eight references in his neurologic examinations at the asylum that he had anisocoria, meaning pupils were unequal. You have a certain kind of pupil, we call an Argyle-Robertson pupil, where the pupil does not react to light, and they didn't test for that or they didn't document that. That's beyond the level of medical exams at that time. So what I'd like to do is play two movements a little bit of the carnival. And the first movement is the preambule, because it's the first movement, so it's the beginning. It's fun to play it. And it sounds like a carnival. It sounds like a Mardi Gras. And then I want to play a little bit of the movement called Chopin. So it's kind of interesting. He calls it Chopin, and he writes the music as if he's Chopin. Now, these days, we would consider it plagiarism to take someone else's work and put it in your manuscript. You know, these days, they have the if you send a, a paper into a journal, they all have this plagiarism software now, where if you like, copy too many words from someone else, you get accused of plagiarism. But in, the, in those days, the fashion was try, you tried to write exactly like someone you admire, and he named the movement Chopin. And it sounds like Chopin. You'll hear that. Why did he do that? All pianists admire Chopin. Chopin is a whole other story. But let's listen to some Schumann. Let me find Schumann. I'm, I have a great story on Mahler, but I, can't, I just can't get to Mahler. All right, here's Schumann. 
Okay, uh, movement one, Carnival. Thank you. <coughs> okay, now, um, I think we'll do Ravel. How much time is, do I have? I've, I, we're about, we're good? I want to leave plenty of time for the more modern stuff. What time am I supposed to stop? Let me do Ravel quick, and then I, uh, okay, so you all know a little bit about Ravel. He's a, he's a French guy. His father was an engineer and a pianist. Ravel enrolled in the Paris Conservatory of Music at 14. Then he, quote, resigned. He was actually thrown out, as far as I can tell. Then he re-entered. This guy was a technical perfectionist, so this is a different era of music. He really composed to charm and entertain. He wasn't so impressed with the sort of metaphysical approach to music like Schumann would have had with all this self-expression. He wasn't so impressed with like over-philosophizing music, but he was a stickler for technical proficiency. <coughs> Here's some quotes I like from Ravel. We should always remember that sensitiveness and emotion constitute the real content of a work of art. It was, it was, I mean, he was into the emotionality, but not so much the philosophizing. He also said something I find interesting. In my own work of composition, I find a long period of conscious gestation necessary. You know, gestation's a word for pregnancy. <laughs> but it takes him a long time to come up with it. And then he wrote, there are only two types of music, that which pleases and that which is boring. Now, the interesting thing about Ravel is and he, he demented, okay? He lost his mental faculties. So at age 37, he has some exhaustion. It may be irrelevant. Let's go down to age 52. His handwriting starts to deteriorate, so that's the first neurological change. And he actually has a memory lapse while he's playing his own work, Sonatine. 1829, so he's in his mid-50s now. He has terrible insomnia, but he had some bursts of proficiency and creativity. He wrote the famous Bolero, which a lot of people know. But then, a couple years later, he recuses himself from judging a competition, which is pretty unusual for a professional musician at that level. And then in 1932, he composes some of his most famous works, Concerto in G, Concerto for the Left Hand, but he's in a taxicab accident, and it was thought that maybe he had a concussion. Now, a year later, he, has, he develops this difficulty with swimming. So 
I mean, he's, he's not a great athlete, but swimming was his favorite sport. And he did the stroke, which we, they used to call the crawl. Now it's called the freestyle. But he had trouble doing it. And he also started seeing doctors because he developed ataxia or loss of balance, memory problems. He had his last public performance in 1933. Now, he was examined by a very famous neurologist named Alajuanin, who was known for Alajuanin syndrome, the syndrome of spontaneous rupture of an arterial venous malformation in the spinal cord. And anyway, Alajuanin publishes his examination of Ravel in the journal Brain in 1948. This was an amazing examination. I realize there's too much medical jargon on here. But Alajuanin said that Ravel had aphasia, which means loss of language, without any trace of paralysis or hemianopia. In other words, no, no weakness and no problem with the visual fields. Now, he had what's called an idiomotor apractic component, which means he couldn't do certain things with his hands. His oral and written language were impaired, but he had no intellectual weakening. He had excellent memory, judgment, affect, and taste for aesthetics. This is really cool. Alajuanin brings a piano into the exam room. He has a pianist play music for Ravel, and part of the exam was to see how Ravel reacted to the music. And this is what he said about Ravel. His recognition of tunes was generally good and prompt. He was able to evaluate exactly rhythm and style. He immediately notices the lightest mistake in the playing. He immediately protested and demanded a perfect accuracy. That was classic Ravel. The patient immediately stopped the pianist. He succeeded in explaining, but in halting speech, that the first bar was to link with the proceeding part. That's part of the beauty of music is you have to link it all together. On the contrary, analytic recognition of notes and music dictation were quite faulty, copying impossible. So he couldn't like dictate the notes. He couldn't say, oh, play the C, play the B. He couldn't write it out. Yet he had good arti artistic sensibility. So in 1937, he has a craniectomy because people were thinking that from that taxi cab accident, he may have had a blood clot on his brain, a subdural hematoma, and if they drained that off, he would recover. But they found no softening of the brain. They found no subdural hematoma. They just left the door open, and that was it. He improved after surgery, but he then went into a coma, died, died 10 days after this unnecessary brain surgery. Interestingly, prior to surgery, he stayed at a friend's apartment across the street from the hospital in Paris because he needed to be at the hospital early in the morning. And he heard his own bolero broadcast and he laughed, what a good joke I have played on the musical world. Now, I don't know if you know the story of the bolero, but the story was he was in some kind of um, parlor, like a, like a bar, and people were playing pool and stuff like that. And somebody was tapping this rhythm like wet, like this. And somebody made a joke, said, I bet you can't write a piece based on that. Ravel said, I bet I can. He wrote the bolero. So, um, you know, it's all this ostinato in the left hand. It goes over and over again, very repetitive. Now, it turns out his father, Joseph, died from a very similar slow dementia. So basically, Maurice Ravel had about a 10-year progressive course with apraxia, meaning inability to do certain complex tasks, aphasia, meaning lo loss of language. Later, he had the frontal lobe apathy and some memory impairment from temporal lobe, probably. It's not a classic Alzheimer's dementia where you lose memory first. It was more of a losing these complex motor tasks first. We call it... Pick's disease or frontotemporal atrophy. It runs in families, and that's the diagnosis to explain Ravel's dementia. Pretty interesting, and I want to play a little bit of the bolero so you get to hear Ravel. Okay, let me see. Anybody able to uh, turn pages? Anybody read music? Oh, that would be good. And I won't, I won't go too long on this. Let me just. Go on that side.
Okay, there's Ravel. <coughs> okay, we're going to move on and get into two more modern guys. I, I would love to do Shostakovich, probably the greatest composer for piano of the 20th century. He wrote, I just have to say, he was a hero to the Russians, and then he became a pariah, and Stalin's henchmen eliminated everybody around him, but he sort of stayed undercover to survive the Stalinist regime. Uh, his music uh, was played as the Russian soldiers marched against the Nazis in the Northern Front. Uh, but it was later recognized after the Iron Curtain fell that Shostakovich was actually writing against Stalin more than against Hitler because he was living under Stalin. So there's a lot of political turmoil to Shostakovich's music. I just don't have time to go through the medical part, although if anyone wants to know, he died of ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which everyone considers Lou Gehrig's disease, the great baseball player. But if you're a musician, you should know it's also Dmitry Shostakovich's disease. So Shostakovich had ALS. Let me do two modern guys at the end. Cole Porter. So now we're going to get into the great American songbook. I have to do this. I'm in the USA. I've given this talk all over the world, and the Europeans are a little less interested in these guys, but the Americans love these guys, and I do too. So Cole Porter was a Midwesterner. He grew up in Indiana, another guy whose grandfather was way more influential than his father. <coughs> he published his first song at the age of 10. He was valedictorian of his fancy private school in Indiana. And he had a music teacher named Dr. Abercrombie who taught him that words and music must be so inseparably wedded to each other that they are like one. If you think about all the songs Cole Porter wrote, he also wrote the lyrics. It's amazing. Cole Porter came east to New Haven, Connecticut and was a very colorful figure at Yale. He composed fight songs at Yale that are still used today at the football games. He composed several musicals at Yale that are now a part of the early history of that great drama school they have there. They have a fantastic program in drama and theater and the arts. He was one of the originals. He was voted the most entertaining man as a college student at Yale. He also began exploring his homosexuality. It becomes important in terms of his life <coughs> because a lot of his shows were focused on the superiority meaning sexual prowess of Yale men. Like Schumann, Porter attended law school at Harvard, not Leipzig, but only briefly. He ended up writing music, and his first Broadway show called See America First flopped completely in 1916. So when your first paper or grant application flops, don't give up. Cole Porter's first Broadway show flopped. What did he do? He moved to Paris as in the guise of a post-World War I war American hero, because by that point, the war was over, and the, you know, the Americans won, the Allies won. And, uh, but he never served a day in the military. And he climbed the social ladder there. How did he do it? He married an American woman named Linda Thomas. It was clearly a very political marriage, but it was very successful. Evidently, she saw other men, and she ignored his, you know, that part of his life. But they got along like great friends. And it was a very successful public marriage until she died in 1954. Now, Cole was a bit of an equestrian. And if you ever watch any of the movies on his life, there's one called Night and Day after his famous song. There's a more recent one called The Lovely. You'll see that he had this terrible horseback riding accident in 1937. And he had multiple fractures and nerve injuries in his legs. But he was a colorful guy. And he, like, remember how Schumann used different names for introvert versus extrovert? Cole Porter named his left leg Josephine and his right leg Geraldine. And he wrote about their coming out party. Now think about this. This, was in a, this is not 2015. You didn't come out then if you were homosexual. You stayed in the closet. But he wrote about his legs coming out when the casts were removed. And he actually had a party when the casts were removed. It was a big party. Now, 
There was a pretty well-known physician named Dr. Joseph Connery who recommended bilateral amputations. Cole refused that completely. He was hospitalized at a place then called Doctor's Hospital in New York City. He was examined, the most famous neurologist to ever examine him was Foster Kennedy, who's well-known to neurologists for the Foster Kennedy syndrome, which describes the eye findings in a person with a long-standing frontal lobe tumor. But anyway, he remained prolific, <coughs> wrote lots of shows and songs and stuff like that. But he developed severe pain because of these nerve injuries, and he became addicted to alcohol and medications. In 1941, so 20 years before he, he dies or so, even more than that, he's diagnosed with depression, and he receives ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, shock therapy. He was one of the first patients to not only receive shock therapy for depression, but to receive Carare-like medication, which is to paralyze you. So before then, they would give people shock for depression, but they would like convulse on the table. But he received a paralytic, so he got shocked in his brain, but he didn't convulse because he was paralyzed. So he belongs in the annals of medicine, not just the annals of music. Turns out Cole Porter had 33 surgeries on his legs, lots of complications, osteomyelitis, meaning infection in the bone, and his right leg, I think it was Geraldine, was amputated in 1958. At that point, he became withdrawn and reclusive, very different than his baseline personality. He rarely played the piano. He developed severe hiccups five days after the amputation. He regarded himself as half a man. Now, one month after the amputation, Cole Porter began complaining about a new pain in the right leg, which was amputated. It's one of the first examples we have of phantom limb pain, where you feel pain in a limb you no longer have. And it destroyed him, made him almost suicidal, and it, it devastated him until he died in 1964. I want to play a couple of tunes by Cole Porter. If anyone knows the words and wants to sing, it'd be great. Um, I think I'm just going to put the music away because it's just distracting. And uh, it's worth hearing these. Uh, what is this thing called? I did this in chronological order. What is this thing? What is this thing? What is this thing? Night and day, night and day. play all of you because he talks about all of you like I want all of you and remember he felt he was half a man and he's, I think he's talking about all of himself I love this one Thank you. 
Cole Porter. Okay. I, I have to leave ample time at the end for my personal favorite, and most people's favorite, George Gershwin. I mean, there's nobody like Gershwin. So he's born Jakob Gershwitz in September of 1898 to a Jewish-Russian immigrant family in Brooklyn. And by the time he's 10, he practically drops out of school. He shows interest in music. He actually thought about playing the violin, but his best friend, Maxi Rosenzweig, convinced him that wasn't, that wasn't a good idea. George wasn't particularly good at the violin. So he switched to piano, and the rest is history. Um, he quit school at 14 to become a lifetime musician. He had a prolific career, wrote The Rhapsody in Blue, The Great American Opera, The Concert in F, American in Paris, Porgy and Bess, many, many great pieces. But the medical history of George Gershwin is really worth knowing. So he was a pretty extroverted guy. And another guy who did not have a lot of successful love relationships, a little bit like Beethoven. Um, I think I get into some of that. But he was an extroverted, happy guy. Yet in late 1936, he develops depression. And in 1937, during a performance of his own concert in F, he smells burnt rubber. It's a nasty smell like rotten eggs, burnt rubber. We call that <coughs> an olfactory hallucination where you smell something that's not there. Or an uncinate hallucination because the uncinate part of the mesial or middle part of the temporal lobe is what gives you olfactory hallucinations. <coughs> and um, he had this smell with a brief mental lapse and made a blunt mistake at the piano that the musicians on the stage recognized and musicians in the audience recognized. Now, he covered it up so quickly, non-musicians did not recognize it at all. But he made a mistake, and he actually, I'm, it seems like I'm missing a slide, but he had the same problem a couple other times. So he consulted his private physician, who happened to be a psychiatrist, and he said, oh, this is some kind of defense mechanism in typical psychiatric parlance. Uh, I hope I'm not insulting anybody who's a psychiatrist or the son or daughter of one, but, or married to one. <coughs> but George was very stressed. George was composing for movies to make money. It's hard to make money as a musician, but one way you could have done it back then was to compose for the silent movies because these movies needed piano reels. And this was below his level of musicianship, but it was like a lot of us in medicine will do some outside consulting to make extra money, because especially when you're in academic medicine. You might have to do some writing or consulting. It was the same thing with a, with a musician. You can be the greatest musician of all time. You still got to put bread on the table. So he did that by writing music for silent movies. Also, he had an unrequited love interest for a very famous, beautiful actress named Paulette Goddard. But she was not going to leave her husband, who was Charlie Chaplin. And then George had another episode, about 30 seconds duration, at a barber shop while waiting to get a haircut. And in early 37, he also starts complaining of headaches and dizziness. It was again attributed to overworking. He saw another doctor for a second opinion who said psychosomatic disorder, which is basically the same thing the first one said. <coughs> and then his headaches were attributed to some crazy suctioning device he was using because he was going bald and he was trying to pull the hair follicles out of his scalp. <coughs> so he consulted with the Dr. Gabriel Siegel with a chief complaint at that point of dizzy spells, accompanied by the smell of burnt rubber for roughly 30 seconds, mainly in the morning or when nervous. A lot of clues there. What's he having? He's having little temporal lobe seizures, giving him those olfactory or uncinate hallucinations associated with confusion. About 30 seconds long is the typical duration of a temporal lobe seizure. And mainly in the morning when you're lying down all night and you have more neurologic symptoms because your intracranial pressure is going up if there's something wrong in your head. 
as opposed to a migraine headache that gets better when you lie down and go to sleep, uh, something with pressure in your head gets worse when you wake up in, at night or in the morning. But Dr. Siegel requested a spinal tap, which Gershwin refused, which was probably smart. But anyway, Gershwin was in complete denial anyway and just sort of hoped his symptoms would fade away. Wouldn't any of us hope that these symptoms would fade away if it happened to us in our, what, 40s? <coughs> Maybe even 30s. So at this point, he's on the West Coast because, you know, a lot of musicians go from New York to the West Coast. And he goes to the Cedars of Lebanon Hospital, now known as Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, right near Hollywood. And he presents there with severe frontotemporal headache, with nausea, dizziness, and olfactory hallucinations. Also, his relatives started to notice a lot of behavioral changes. For example, he attempted to throw his driver out of the car while the guy was driving the car. And at one point, he got chocolates as gifts, and he rubbed it all over his body and said it was some kind of ointment for his skin. He started to have change in his, his coordination. He began dropping objects from his right hand. He had trouble climbing stairs. But his discharge diagnosis from the Cedars-Sinai Hospital, uh, then called Cedars of Lebanon, was hysteria. He had a normal neurological examination by a Dr. Siskin, who I probably shouldn't mention. And he had blood tests, skull x-rays, an EKG, a cardiogram, and a Wasserman's test for syphilis. Now, <coughs> there's a lot of controversies about when these symptoms actually began because his good friend, Mitch Miller, you probably remember, heard of Mitch Miller, you know. If you go to Rochester, New York, I actually gave this talk at the Eastman School of Music, which was a phenomenal music program, school. And the night before, we had a dinner, and it was the Miller, like we had dinner tonight in a nice auditorium. It was the Mitch Miller Auditorium at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York, University of Rochester. So anyway, Miller was a friend of Gershwin. And he remembered that Gershwin complained of smelling burning garbage in 1934, three years before Gershwin died. But Miller said this in 1988, which is 54 years later. Miller's 86 years old. A lot of his dates were off. So no one knows exactly when George's symptoms began. His, a very uh, authoritative biographer reported that George started having severe headaches in early March of 1936. The end comes in July 1937. George is playing piano that morning, slips into a coma that night. The next day, his neurological examination showed some key findings. Bilateral hyperreflexia, meaning his reflexes were very brisk all over his body. <coughs> Clonus in both hands, which means shaking with the hands. Babinski signs, which is another sign of increased pressure and uh, central problems in the head. He's diagnosed with an expansive tumoral lesion based on that examination, and immediate surgery was recommended. Now, who was the leading neurosurgeon in the United States at that time? Who's the father of American neurosurgery? Harvey Cushing. If you are in medicine, you will know that name instantly. Cushing was a very famous Harvard professor of neurosurgery, ended up at Yale, got mad at Harvard when he got thrown out, so his library's at, no, he started at Yale. Actually, he started at Yale, ended up at Hopkins, and finally at Harvard. He got thrown out of Harvard and put his library at Yale. So if you want to find the Cushing Library, it's here in New Haven, Connecticut, <coughs> which is an incredible, incredible thing in terms of medis medical libraries. But anyway, Cushing was retired at that point, so he recommended his protege, Walter Dandy, known for the Dandy-Walker malformation. It, so Dandy was Cushing's resident, his student. Turns out they had a love-hate relationship. I, by the way, I forgot to tell you about Beethoven and Haydn. Haydn was Beethoven's teacher, but Beethoven quickly kind of overran him, and they competed for years, and Beethoven finally made up with him on his dead be deathbed for Haydn. Now, back to Cushing. Cushing and Dandy couldn't stand each other. Uh, Dandy probably had better hands than Cushing, but anyway... Cushing recommended Dandy. He was at Hopkins then. But Dandy was on vacation on a yacht in the Chesapeake Bay outside of Baltimore. 
So they couldn't get him. But the White House intervened. Now, why would the White House intervene? Because Cushing had three daughters and two sons. His daughters were raised by the Boston Brahmins, this big-time aristocratic money-type family deal in Boston, to marry famous people. So Cushing's daughter, Betsy, married Jimmy Roosevelt, the son of the president. Can you imagine the daughter of the father of American neurosurgery marrying the son of the president of the United States? Can you imagine getting an invitation to that wedding? Now, <coughs> Betsy convinced her father-in-law, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, to get the Coast Guard and pluck Dandy off the yacht and get him to the airport. Now, it turns out Eleanor Roosevelt did not get along with Betsy Cushing Roosevelt because they were both headstrong women. Eleanor Roosevelt was arguably the most powerful woman of the 20th century, uh, and Betsy did not go to her mother-in-law, but she went to her father-in-law. By the way, Betsy and Jimmy later divorced, and that was the end of that. But at this time, they were married, and they were able to get Dr. Dandy to the airport out uh, in Annapolis to fly to California. But the flight had to go to LaGuardia first in, in New Jersey, and it never got any further west than there because Gershwin needed surgery. So another fa fairly famous neurosurgeon, but not at the level of Cushing or Dandy, was Howard Napsiger, who happened to be on vacation in Arizona. But they pulled him up from Arizona, and he and Carl Rand, another well-known neurosurgeon, operated on George Gershwin, July 10th, 1937 at 9.30 p.m. The surgery was successful. They, died, they found the tumor. They removed the tumor. Five hours later, the patient died. It's the thing we have in medicine. We say the surgery was successful and the patient died. It's not exactly successful. But the story that's come up, and I've written about this fairly extensively, and you're getting to hear it now, it's in the original, is could George Gershwin have been saved? This guy was incredibly prolific, incredibly talented, and here he is dying at like something like 40 years of age. Could he have been saved? Well, <coughs> Dandy himself published on the use of X-ray encephalography, putting air into the subarachnoid space, like doing a spinal tap and putting air in and visualizing the ventricles. If you have expanding mass, you could have picked it up. Dandy published this in 1918, years before Gershwin died. A guy named Moniz published cerebral angiography, putting dye in the blood vessels, and you could pick up an expansive tumor in 1927, about 10 years before Gershwin dies. And I'm, an, I'm a neurologist, so I have to show you the very famous paper by Gray Walter, August 8th, 1936, a year before Gershwin dies. It's the first paper showing not only a normal EEG, but EEG slowing over a brain tumor. So if Gershwin would have had an EEG, his tumor would have been diagnosed. But he was a lot of, a lot of denial going on, and he was never diagnosed. So George Gershwin was said to have died of a high-grade malignant fulminant GBM, glioblastoma multiforme, the most malignant brain tumor there is, is the tumor that killed Senator Ted Kennedy. If you have that tumor, you're not going to last more than six months to a year, except maybe very unusual cases. But I was able to have this tumor removed because they pulled the slides from the bowels of the Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. And this is George Gershwin's tumor. So for those of you who have studied histology, you will see that this is not a highly aggressive GBM, but this is a low-grade glioma. There are little glial cells, and there's not a high mitotic index. There's a little mitosis going on there. There's not a lot of... Um, necrotic connective tissue around it. This is a low-grade glioma, and this is a high-power view of George Gershwin's tumor. And this shows these astrocytic cells, and this is what a, what's called, see how it looks kind of like fibrils? They call it a fibrillary astrocytoma. You're looking at George Gershwin's actual brain tumor. Now, I'm gonna show you instead the brain of a patient who died in teenage at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, because I had all this reviewed by Lucy Rourke, who was an eminent neuropathologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia University of Pennsylvania, and she reviewed George's tumor, and she said, this is a benign tumor that George died of. So <coughs> this was a, a brain specimen 
from a, a kid in his 20s who had a brain tumor. And this is exactly what George's brain would have looked like. You see the swollen temporal lobe here from a low-grade tumor, and if you slice through the tumor, you see the cystic component. So this is exactly what George's brain would have looked like. It's a grade two cystic esocytoma, and these are now curable. And it could have been cured if it was picked up on George earlier. And this is a high-grade, uh, well, this is the histology of this, of this young person's tumor. It's the same histology as George. So even though the literature up until recently said George Gershwin died of a high-grade fulminant GBM, he didn't. He had a low-grade fibrillary esocytoma with a large cyst. So it wasn't really the tumor that killed George. It was the herniation. It was the pressure effect from the tumor that caused him to herniate and die. Now, here's something really interesting. Walter Dandy, one of the most famous neurosurgeons in history, wrote this personal letter to George Gershwin's physician, Dr. Siegel, right after George died. Look how we all cover our tracks. The great Walter Dandy wrote, quote, I can't fathom what could possibly be done for Mr. Gershwin. It was one of those fulminating tumors. There are only a handful of removable tumors. And I believe that even though a great part of the tumor was removed and he could have had a brief recovery, he would soon relapse as the disease was rather fulminating from the very beginning. I believe it was the best outcome for him since for a brilliant man, a recurring tumor would be but a terrible slow death. Well, <coughs> Danny didn't have the advantage that we have of knowing what George had, but he was doing his best to explain what happened. George Gershwin received a posthumous Pulitzer Prize 61 years after he died. His photograph is on the eight-cent stamp released in 1973, and his brother, Ira, was his lyricist. So I showed you George Gershwin's career fell apart because he herniated from an undiagnosed brain tumor presenting with olfactory hallucinations. And I'd like to play three tunes by Gershwin just to honor him. And let me say this. <coughs> no one is going to tell you that George Gershwin was the greatest composer of all time, like Beethoven or, the, or Shostakovich for piano, or the greatest pianist of all time, like Chopin. But you could argue that he was the greatest melodist of all time. Listen to his melodies. They are amazing, every one of them. So listen to the melody on Embraceable You. I like to play A Foggy Day because it's just a favorite. And I like to include the famous introduction because we too often ignore the introductions. And then I want to end with Love is Here to Stay, which we call Our Love is Here to Stay. Why do I want to end with that one? It's the last tune George ever wrote. He wrote Our Love is Here to Stay, and he died soon after. And Ira found the music after George died. So when everyone, anyone hears the music to Our Love is Here to Stay, Everyone thinks it's like a man singing to a woman or a love interest. In my opinion, is the ultimate expression of brotherly love. If you listen to those words, it's Ira writing for George. Start with Embraceable You. Anybody want to sing any of these? Let me just go right into it.
foggy day, I'm going to play the introduction first because it's just incredible. Love is here to stay. George Gersh. <laughs> so what I've done is 
given you, I think, more than an introduction to the musical and medical biographies of Ludwig van Beethoven, Robert and Clara Schumann, Maurice Ravel, Dmitry Shostakovich, Cole Porter, and George Gershwin. Thanks for your attention. You know, <coughs> like, like you're suggesting, folks who are deaf use vibration from an instrument to hear it. But that hasn't been talked about very much with Beethoven. What, what has been talked about with that is he actually may have improved, I don't know if I'd say improved, but he was able to remain a great composer. Some people said because he wasn't distracted by ambient noise, because he just had his own genius within him. And that when you're a composer at that level, you can just sort of hear the music in your head. You don't, you don't need it externally. Uh, but there are arguments that he became an even greater composer because of the deafness in spite of it sort of thing. Yeah, yeah that's a cool question. Yeah. I was just wondering for Gershwin, is there, was it ever found out the reason why he died after his surgery, so soon after his surgery? I'm sorry, I didn't follow that. Say it again. So um, for Gershwin, who had the tumor, yeah. um, was it ever found out why he died five hours after his surgery, so soon after? He had, he had herniated so badly. He had this huge mass in his temporal fossa, and it pressed on his brain stem, his midbrain, his pons, his medulla. So no matter what they were going to do, he wasn't going to survive that surgery because his vital brain stem centers had already been compressed affecting his respirations, his heart, his brain stem was crushed from the temporal herniation. There are different kinds of herniation, and the kind that happens the, the most quick and that kills the patient the fastest is uncle herniation or a temporal from, it's called the uncus because it's part of the brain that's right against a bony prominence. And once that gets swollen, it's very hard to compensate as opposed to a central herniation where the entire brain gets swollen due to some other cause, then it just pushes down. That you could actually is slower, and you can recover from that one a little better than what he had. Other questions? Oh, here. Uh, bravo. Uh, thank <laughs> you so much for that talk. Okay, question about Ravel. Um, there's lots of uh, details presented. It's not quite totally clear in my mind, but it seemed like his musical cognition, if you could say that, was spared yeah. in spite of having what seemed like a global impairment and all sorts of other, including cognitive <coughs> abilities. Is it so sort of a separate His dementia, module? which is called Pick's disease or frontotemporal yeah. atrophy, is more of a motor deterioration than overall cognitive, mm -hmm. emotional, even memory comes later. So he had more difficulty with swimming the freestyle and writing the music and speaking the music, the more frontal lobe motor functions than the more global receptive okay. functions. So he would still be hearing speech and yeah. understanding that. Understanding so would be good. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sort of related question. There's been a documentary going around called uh, 
alive inside where they have very demented elderly uh, patients and they're played music from their youth. They're basically um, beyond vocalization. They, they sit passively all day long and don't react at all. But when they play the music that they grew up with, they um, wake up, as it were. They become responsive. And I was just wondering if you had heard of that and had any I don't know that documentary, but let me say this. There are many constructs to memory, and we have neuropsychologists in the room. And I, I have various ways I teach memory to medical students. But one of the more simplistic ones is long-term versus short-term. Mm -hmm. And the long-term is very robust. I mean, you can dement and have severe Alzheimer's disease, and you won't remember what you had for breakfast that morning, and you may not remember your spouse, but you'll remember your parents and, and the city where you grew up in, even though you won't remember where you lived the last 30 years. So that long-term memory is cemented in there so strongly in the fibers that connect the hippocampus, which is the center for episodic memory, to the higher executive function, the frontal lobes, where memory is, is uh, stored, and then you retrieve it from the storage area and use it. That, that is cemented in there. But once you lose long-term memory, you are really demented. But it takes a long time before you lose long-term memory. And you're going to remember stuff from your childhood long after you remember anything from your adulthood. <laughs> Other questions? I had, oh, one more question. I'm wondering if, um, you know, you talked about how Beethoven, you know, maybe um, his musical gifts were enhanced by the losing of his um, hearing, you know, and that could be argued one way or another, but are there any other cases where you know that, because we talked a lot about uh, musicians where, you know, their musical abilities kind of deteriorated, but are there any um, instances where you know that the musician was enhanced because of maybe like some auditory hallucinations or, or something, you know, some situation like that. <coughs> the best example I give of that, and this won't surprise you, is folks who are blind have some can have incredible musical skills. And some of the greatest musicians are blind um, and their their occipital lobes shrivel, the visual part of the brain, but their auditory lobes, the hearing parts, expand. Um, some of the greatest in fact if I'm playing you know, I play a lot of gigs and stuff. If I'm playing with a blind musician I know I'm in trouble because they're <laughs> <coughs> they're hearing things I'm not hearing. In fact, we talk about perfect pitch or absolute pitch. So folks who are blind from birth have way higher rates of perfect pitch than seeing folks. So even though their genetic influences the perfect pitch, um, they're also acquired influences. And if you don't have that stimulation to your visual center, your auditory stimulation is just fantastic. So I think it's to the advantage of musicians, unfortunately, if they don't have other senses. I'm otherwise not too, too aware of deafness actually augmenting a a musician. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions or comments? I was wondering what instrument you play in the Longwood Symphony. I played in the percussion section. Okay. Um, so I ended up playing drum set, snare drum, cymbals. You know, I was a percussion major at Peabody in the preparatory since I was in sixth grade and in the conservatory as a college student. Uh, so in a symphony like that, uh, my section would be percussion. Okay, so when you go back to your roots for the Longwood Symphony. Or I, I could play a xylophone, marimba, mm -hmm. the mallets. I've heard sometimes you play out like at Boston jazz clubs and things like that. Is that rumor true? <coughs> yeah, I, I actually have a CD that um, we made at Blues Alley in Georgetown when I was in Washington, D.C. That's the leading jazz club in Georgetown. And I, and I had always benefited the Kids Care Fund, which was for medical care for the indigent kids in Washington, D.C. at Children's Hospital. 
Uh, now that I moved from Children's Hospital, if anyone wants a CD, just email me. I'll mail it to you because I have plenty of leftovers. But <coughs> when, I was, when I left D.C., I had played Blues Alley and many other clubs many times. I'm new to Boston, so I haven't done a whole lot of playing in Boston. But what I end up doing is playing at medical meetings where I'm invited. I go to a conference to give a talk or give this talk, and then they have a party, and I ultimately end up being the one playing. Oh, excellent. All right, <laughs> we'll keep that in mind for the future. All right, well, join me in thanking Dr. Pearl for this wonderful evening. Thank you.